Luke 2 and verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him into Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written by the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the very word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great word and the word himself, which was manifested to us and brought to us so many years ago. And he is our Savior. He is our Lord. Father, we pray your spirit to open up these words to us in a fresh way, a new way, a powerful way today, that this would transform us and bring the light to our very souls as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, here we have the story of the birth of Jesus, and this is what happened on the eighth day. On the eighth day, the little boys were to be taken to the temple. They were just circumcised, and, uh, and so Mary and Joseph traveled from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It would have been about six miles. I don't know if Mary was well recovered from the birth. Don't know, but they had to walk the six miles. From Jerusalem, or from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for this circumcision. What was happening is Simeon, who we do not know if he was a priest, we're doubtful that he was a priest or a Levite, but he must have been a prophet of some sort. And this was one of the first prophetic revelations of God to the people of God since Malachi, would have been about 400 years. John the Baptist as well, a prophet, but this man also had received a prophetic revelation from God concerning the coming of Jesus. And the, the, the prophecy indicated that Messiah was to come in Simeon's lifetime. So we don't know how long he had to wait for this to happen. Could have been 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. I don't know. But here he is, an old man in the temple, who actually comes across the baby Jesus. And this was the greatest moment 
in the man's life. There he was holding the encouragement of Israel. He had been waiting for the paraclesis of Israel. So we know the word paraclete. We talk about that word a lot. It's the word used for consolation, encouragement, uh, coaching, and exhortation. Same word. We translate it a lot of different ways. But here is a man who is waiting for the consolation of Israel, the encouragement of Israel. And I believe this has something to do with Isaiah 40, where we read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. By the way, that word is translated in the Septuagint as paraclesis. So it's the same word. So that's why I would draw it in. LXX, the Septuagint, was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the whole idea of, of Jesus being the paraclesis of Israel was given to us in Isaiah 40. Comfort me, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the comfort of God that has come in Jesus. So that's the first thing we can draw from this passage as we really try to bear into what is it that Jesus has come to do or to be. And uh, the first thing we find is that Jesus is a consolation and he's a comfort. We need comfort, brothers and sisters. Israel was in need of, of comfort because they had suffered so much. They had so much sin. They had so many consequences of their sins. They had their heart break a thousand times throughout redemptive history. They had the exiles. We have the slavery in Egypt. We had millions of people dying in the wars. Uh, just the heartbreak of a destroyed nation, the subservience to other nations in the time of the judges. Uh, Israel had been through really in a microcosm what everybody else in the microcosm is experiencing in the world. This is our life. And Israel is presented in the Old Testament, I believe, as a picture of our lives with all of the heartbreak that we go through in, in our lives. And I think every man, woman, and child on earth can say we need a little comfort. Uh, even the little babies, I hear them crying. You know, I hear them in my home quite often crying, uh, half for the last number of days. And uh, so it appears that even little babies who are born need a fair amount of comfort. They receive that from their mothers. Uh, but there's just a world that is so messed up that we need so much comfort. And a lot of us are really tired. We become at the point where we're weary and, uh, and overcome by all of the sin and all the consequences of sin. We're, we're labored down our minds, our emotions. Uh, at some point it becomes chronic. And people are in such chronic need of, of some, some kind of medication, that they're medicated. We have more people medicated today in the nation than we ever have. I've had a couple of phone calls recently of people who are suffering from chronic emotional and mental problems. It's because this world is a terrible place. It's because we all need consolation. Because we deal with death and we deal with sin and the consequences of sin and all of these things that affect our lives and so at some point we cry out for comfort. We need somebody to comfort us. We need a little consolation here. And so, so this is the great consolation that has come to the world. God has finally come to comfort the world. He's brought his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so here we are, just like Israel, surrounded by enemies, often enslaved. We have so much slavery, sometimes that slavery to sin. In fact, by nature, all of us enslaved to sin, uh, compromised to idolatry. Sometimes we're, we're locked hand and foot to idols, and then we suffer exile. We suffer all of these consequences of sin. The worst of all is the hypocrisy of pride and self-righteousness that so afflicted the people of Israel upon the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Jesus comes as a consolation. 
uh, to Israel. So Simeon uh, grabs or takes the little baby Jesus in his arms and he effectively prophesies over Jesus and he brings this declaration or definition of the life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is named at this point officially as Jesus or Yeshua or, or Jesus and uh, as he receives the baby in his arms. He, he brings this prophetic word over our Lord Jesus Christ and gives us a, a, a firm idea of why Jesus came. I just did a summary recently on a broadcast of 31 reasons why Jesus came from direct uh, scriptural uh, passages. And it really was sourced in Joel Beakey's uh, little booklet. I recommend that to you. It's all of the scriptures relating to why Jesus came. So be sure that we keep that in front of us on this uh, Christmas Eve morn. So what, what are the reasons why Jesus came according to this passage, this prophetic word from Simeon? I would call them five defining elements of Jesus' life purpose or life legacy. He was prophesying over Jesus, and this would constitute what Jesus would be, and what Jesus would do. So these are the five really essential elements of Jesus' life and his life purpose and his legacy. So let's go over them one by one, first of which is, is his name. And uh, he was named Jesus, and uh, the prophet says this over him, uh, effectively, let me die now. Uh, let me die now. I'm okay that I can die now that I've seen your salvation. So that's the first point, is I've seen the salvation of God. And uh, so he cries out uh, this message to God above. It's almost a prayer that he prays in the presence of Mary and Joseph and the baby. And he says these words, I have seen your salvation. So this is the first core truth of the Christian life is that we have the salvation of God. He has come. He is a Savior. He has seen the very salvation of God, the long-expected salvation of God to come into the world. So there's a finally element here. You get that. As here's a man who's been waiting. Now, of course, Israel's been waiting for some 1,600 years. But, uh, but now this man's been waiting for a very long time. And so this is the consolation. This is the final message. This is the final... Uh, answer to the prayers of God's people over the thousands of years uh, prior to the coming of Jesus. Here finally is the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And his name, of course, is Jesus, which means what? It's Yahweh saves. Keep that in mind whenever you say the word Yeshua or Jesus. Don't let it just be a sentimental name. Don't let it be any other name in your mind. But remember, as you say the name Jesus, you're saying Yeshua saves. Yahweh saves. God saves. God comes down to his people and saves his, his people. So every time you say the word Jesus, you're saying, God, you save us. God, you have brought your salvation. And your salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ, the, the very Savior of the world who came to this world 2,000 years ago. So he has, now, Simeon has picked the baby up into his arms and said, Mine eyes have seen your salvation. This is it. God has come down here. He come down personally for us. And it's such a personal salvation, isn't it? That uh, we read this throughout the prophets, that God effectively has rolled up his sleeves and said, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to save my people myself. And I will do it through my son, Jesus Christ. So God has come down to the world to save his people. God has come to visit his people. And it is a friendly visit. These are the same words that Zacharias uses in Luke 1.68. The father of John the Baptist is he 
prophesies in his statement, Luke 1.68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. See, God has come down to visit. This is why the Jehovah Witnesses are wrong. The Mormons are wrong. This is God himself who has come down. Yes, there are three persons, one God and the Godhead. But, uh, but this is God who has come to visit. God has come to visit. You know what it is when I've come to visit you. I knock on your door. I come into your house. Well, God came down to visit his people. He comes for a personal visit. And the visit is a redemptive visit. He's come to redeem his people. For brothers and sisters, we so badly need the redemption of God. Jesus was very self-conscious of this life purpose. In Luke chapter 9, you find this instance in which the disciples and himself are in a Samaritan village. And the, the, the Samaritan village has rejected him. Kind of kicked him out of the village. They don't want anything to do with him. And then we read in Luke 9, verse 55, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did? But he turns, Jesus, turning back on these disciples. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So you see, the objective that Jesus has in his mind, he's come for salvation. He sees a people in need of salvation. That's the purpose of his, of his coming. So, so the Christian faith is one of redemption, of what's saving. And, and our intent is to, is to go into the world and see that in the name of Jesus, these people are saved all around us. This is the objective. This is the center objective of why he came. When his name is given to him as the Savior... God's Savior, Yahweh's Savior, that, that was put upon him as, as what he was all about. His life is about salvation. This, this is what his focus was in coming to this world. Jesus has come to fulfill the purpose of the name that was given to Jesus, and that was to save. And Jesus wanted to be sure in this passage that his disciples understood that. Now, what is our need? What do we need to be saved from? We need to come back to this again and again because people are very interested in some form of salvation or redemption or comfort or consolation. Uh, typically, they want a lot of things. They want to be saved from disease or they want to be saved uh, from poverty. They want money. They want comforts. They want band-aids for their bleeding wounds. That's what people want. That's why they want a party. That's why they want the escape stuff. That's why the electronic section of Walmart is always the busiest in these days, right? Whenever the mob is rushing to one part of the store, we've, we've noticed many times it's always the electronic section. Why? Because that's the drug section. It's where the drugs are. They go straight for the drugs, don't they? That's the way people are today. They go straight for the drugs. Why? Mind drugs. Drugs to, to, to band-aid the reality of what they're facing. The escapistic thing is very big on people. So they're going for that. So people need things. They know they need things. But what is the greatest need of the human life on earth? And that is, as, as, as we stand on the abyss of death, and all of us do, we're, we're on the very edge of a cliff. It's the way life is. Standing on the edge of a cliff. We're, we're, we're almost to tip into the, the abyss of death. 
and heading off to, to judgment, that's where we are at any point. We get into a car accident, we may have a year left, or we may have 10 years left, maybe 30, but we're almost there, almost to die. So that's the position of every man, woman, and child on earth. We're almost to death, we're standing on a cliff, and you, you need to get that feeling sometimes when you're tipping over a thousand foot cliff and you kind of barely catch yourself you feel you know that little tingly feel up and down your your legs and up into your back has that ever happened to you you almost fall off the roof ever happened to anybody you almost fall off a roof okay yeah we got a roofer here so he understands exactly what i'm talking about you get that tingling feel that's where we are every day brothers and sisters we're just on the cliff, almost tipping over that thousand-foot cliff. And so, but most people don't recognize they need to be saved. They need to be saved. This, this is urgent. This has to happen. We must be saved. They don't recognize their need to be saved until they face the judgment of God. And then they call on the hills and the mountains to fall on them. And they look to the money and the entertainment and the doctors and powerful governments and the rest... But you know what? Your cell phone will not save you in that day. Your cell phone will not save you. It can't save you. Doctors can't save you. That moment you tip into eternity, and every one of us will someday, it is appointed once for men to die. And after that, the judgment. Some will bite their lip and they'll be stoic about it and pretend there's no possibility of salvation, so they just try to minimize the problem. But what we needed more than anything else, what all of us needed, was somebody to seriously grapple with the sheer magnitude of the problem. None of us really understand the, the billion-foot cliff. Why? Because, because you look down the cliff and all you see are clouds. You understand what I'm saying? You, you, you and I cannot see into the abyss of eternity. We can't see that far. But God can. And that's the point here. God can see it. God has made every one of us an eternal soul. And he can see the precariousness of where we stand. All of us. He understands it. We needed somebody to understand the precariousness and the significance, the magnitude of the problem. And then, somebody who's big enough to provide a solution to the problem. Only God could possibly comprehend the depth and the breadth and the extent of the need. And only God could see the infinite horizon of eternal life or eternal judgment. Only God could see that far. We can't see it. So there's no way I can express to you or to myself this morning, the need that you have and that I have for a Savior. I can't possibly give you the magnitude of it. I cannot do it. But God knows it. God knew it. And that's why God sent His Son. By the way, only God can possibly understand the depths of the agony of the human soul. I mean, I know, I know what it is for my heart to be broken. I can feel pain. I know pain. And I know you know pain too. But, but we, we, we don't understand the, the, 
the extent of the agony of it. We got, we got band-aids. We're able to suppress the pain just a little bit. We can, or a lot. We do it. We do it all the time. That's, that's what we do in this world. We suppress pain. That's what doctors are called to do. But only God could bring a Savior, a solution to the problem that comes through Jesus Christ, His Son, who is sufficient for this great salvation. He is it. He is the very Son of God. He has taken upon Himself human flesh to be like us so that He could be our Savior. Okay, that's the first point. The first point is that Simeon recognized the salvation of God come in the form of a little baby. That's number one. Number two, Jesus has come to be a light to the Gentile world. Now, the Gentile world is very, very dark, extremely dark. Just finished, I I don't know, maybe a seven-year study of the world before Jesus and the world after Jesus. I've tried to put it into a couple of books. But the world before Jesus, B.C., before Jesus comes, extremely dark. And I don't need to describe the Aztecs to you again. I don't, I don't have to describe all of the darkness of New Guinea. And wow, oh wow, I just finished New Guinea this last week. It's the last nation in the world I've finally hit. But wow, oh wow. I, I, I could never describe this to children. It's just too gross. It's just gross. And now these are firsthand um, messages that come from James Chalmers and others that were the very, very first Europeans to make it to most of the villages throughout New Guinea in the year 1875, roughly. Wow, a nightmare, a living nightmare. Okay, it was cannibalistic, but I, I, I don't want to get into some of the details of what it looked like. Just suffice it to say, the darkest, most demonic thing that the human mind could ever come up with. That's, uh, that's all I'm going to say. The darkness of the Gentile world at this time, and as it was all the way until the gospel arrived at some of these darker areas in 1875. But let me just give you a few other examples. I know I've given you some in the past, but I can give you a few more uh, stories that, that I believe these are good for the children, for all of us. Guiana in South America, this is uh, near the Caribbean on the uh, northeast side of the South American continent, Guiana was very, very dark, extremely dark. Thomas Yaud was the first missionary there, as far as we could find in records. Served 10 years in Guiana before both he and his entire family were killed by a witch doctor. By poisoning. William Henry Brett showed up in 1840 then to minister among the Caribs. By the way, the Caribs, that's where the word cannibal comes from. The Arawaks and others... William Henry Brett's life was constantly threatened by witch doctors, but then the lights came on. Amazing. Now, again, after at least 2,000 years, it might have been a little bit longer. It might have been closer to 3,000 years when these uh, folks had, had arrived in this area of the world. But then the lights came on. A leading sorcerer by the name of Sacrabara was miraculously converted. He approached William Brett's hut one day and asked to be instructed about this, the great our Father who dwells in heaven. Just out of the blue, he shows up. I want to know about the great Our Father who lives in heaven. 
Sacrabara changed his name to Cornelius. Together with five other sorcerers, they gave up their magic, burned all their idols, and they followed Jesus. With the aid of Cornelius' sister-in-law, William Brett was able to provide a competent translation of the first part of Genesis, the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and a catechism on the Apostles' Creed for the Arican people. Amazing. By the way, so many instances in history of, of women who helped the missionaries with the translation work. It's interesting. Uh, some of the, the women of these uh, various tribes were some of the most talented in translating the Bible into the foreign language. As, and here's one more little takeaway. As Cornelius was preparing to die in February of 1868, the old chief charged his sons to, quote, do all they could for the mission and the church of God. And his eldest son who succeeded him in the hour of his death religiously obeyed his father's dying words to his own death. So it was a, it was a multi-generational faith that developed right away among the witch doctors in, uh, in Guyana. 5,000 natives were converted over a 35-year ministry. 5,000 natives. William Brett's final words, listen to this. This is what he said about his ministry in Guyana over 35 years. A more disorderly people than the Arawaks. By the way, I just love the English and how they present things. They almost minimize the things they're talking about uh, so many times. But, but listen to this. A more disorderly people than the Arawaks could not be found in any part of Guyana. Murders and violent cases of assault were of frequent occurrence. Now the case was reversed. No outrages of any description ever happened. They attended regular divine service. Their children were educated. They themselves dressed neatly, are lawfully married. And as a body, there are no people in point of general conduct to surpass them in the world. This change, which has brought peace and contentment to prevail, was brought about by the missionary gospel. Friends, the light came to the gospel world. And this is just one of thousands upon thousands of stories. Um, wow, you could just read them on and on and on. First missionaries to arrive in dark Ohio in 1819. Let me just give you a couple of stories. This is probably the most phenomenal story of, of all of history. Uh, because of the transformation that happened in Hawaii so quickly. Amazing, again, that the gospel wasn't there for thousands of years. And then it immediately was received. There were men that were going throughout all of Hawaii, bringing the gospel everywhere. Preaching was happening throughout all the islands within five years. One of the tribal chiefesses, Kapiolani, who was raised in Kona over on the coast of the Big Island, came under the missionary's instruction almost immediately upon their arrival in 1819. She repented of a lifestyle of drunken... By the way, she was nude on the beach when they came across her and brought the gospel to her. She repented of life of drunkenness and sexual sin and began pressing for an end to infanticide, drunkenness, murder, and thievery among her tribe. She was a leader of the tribe. She brought an end to these sorts of things. Kapiolani exemplifies the religious reformation of Hawaii in the early days, especially in what was to become an iconic demonstration of faith with their public rejection of Pele, the god of volcanoes. I'm sure many of you have heard the story, but it's iconic in all of history, so I'll bring it through to you one more time. Kapiolani, taking it upon herself to journey up the Kiluau volcano, she made the 100-plus mile journey on foot, no doubt barefoot, she obliterated the fearful power the demonic God had held over the people for centuries in one simple act. Now listen to this. The first thing she did was to eat the sacred berries on the mountain, an act considered sacrilegious by the priests of their religious order. She walked across the burning lava, tossed sacred rocks into the volcano. Then she arose up and cried out so that all present with her could hear, My God is Jehovah. 
He it was who kindled these fires. I do not fear Pele. Should I perish by her wrath, then you may fear her power. But if Jehovah saves me while I'm breaking her taboos, then you must fear and love Yahweh. The gods of Hawaii are vain. Somebody say, wow. That's pretty wow. She, this courageous act broke the back of the religious cult, cultus of Pele upon the islands. She died of cancer in 1841 when the missionary lady asked her, she's ready to die. This is what Kapiolani said. She said, when I think of my many sins, I am afraid. But when I think of the righteousness of Christ, I am comforted. And then she died. Missionary historian John Lambert also tells another story of a certain priest. Now his job was to hunt for victims, human victims, to offer as a sacrifice to the volcano god. This dreadful being had acquired the skill of a wild beast in lurking in the bypaths of the forest to leap upon the passers-by and was possessed of such enormous strength besides that he could break the bones of his victims by simply enfolding them in his iron embrace. No wonder that on seeing him, the people shrank back in terror as if from some monster of the jungle. But even this man was conquered by the gospel of love and peace and turned from serving Pele to serving Jesus Christ. Jesus is here and he's conquering the devil and he has turned on the lights in the Gentile world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. By 1830, there were 900 schools and 50,000 students across the islands. The seminary was established in the Haina in 1831. 67 young men enrolled. 3,000 natives were attending the church in Honolulu after six years. After only six years of the mission work, 6,000 people were members of the church of Hawaii. The missionary William Richards reported that the Hawaiian families were practicing daily devotions. He counted at least 50 homes in Lahaina alone where the morning and evening sacrifice is regularly offered to the true God. When I wake up in the morning, I find people waiting at the door to converse on the truths of Scripture. Houses of prayer are multiplying in every part of the village. Missionary Rufus Anderson also testifies such radical reformation of faith and life to be nothing less than the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to this. In the spring of 1838, there was evidence of the presence of the Spirit of nearly all the stations of the island. So there was in Maui, Oahu, and Kauai. It was a work with the power, with power, and the power was evidently that of the Holy Spirit of God. The vile, groveling, and wretched had become attentive hearers of the Word of God and began to think and to feel. Even such as had before given no signs of conscience became anxious inquirers after the way of life. Whenever, wherever the missionary appointed a meeting, he was sure of a listening audience. The Sabbath was extensively observed and rarely were natives seen intoxicated. Family worship prevailed even to a greater extent than the public profession of religion. And everybody knows the story of the bombing of Lahaina from the merchant ships that were trying to prostitute the, the women on, on the island. And, and the government shot da- shut down all the prostitution, said no more. And, of course, you know about the, the ships were bombing uh, the, uh, the mission station uh, there. But by God's grace, the governor of Honolulu stood strong, as did the other governors and the king of the island, and they chased them away. And that was the end of the prostitution of the daughters on the island. So I mean, there's many other stories we could tell. But now, here was an address given in 1841, just about 20 years after the gospel had come for the first time. The governor of Honolulu set apart a day of thanksgiving 
and gave an address, portions of which I want to read right now. Now listen to what he said. This is the governor of Honolulu standing up in front of everybody 20 years after the gospel arrived. Here he says, In looking over the years that are past, I see great reason to praise God for his goodness to me and to all who are here present. I look back to the reign of Kamehameha I. He was the first king that was actually the first king who unified all of Hawaii just before the missionaries arrived providentially. And of course, the gospel came in. His uh, grandson was uh, converted, uh, not him, but his grandson was converted and great things started to happen after that. But it was all under a unified Hawaii. But he says, I look back to the reign of Kamahamaha I and around on the present state of things. I say there is no being so great and so good as Jehovah. And there are no laws so good as his. There was idolatry here. We worshipped wooden gods and feather gods and all sorts of worthless things. We then thought it was right to do so. But we see our error now because we have new light. In former days, right and wrong were all alike to us. But now we see there is a difference. There is a right and there is a wrong. Our idol gods knew nothing. But Jehovah knows all things and has revealed some things to us. In this we are blessed. And today, let us be thankful. Uncleanness abounded in our days of darkness. Some chief men had ten women. Some had more, some had less. The law of marriage was then unknown. Untold evils arose from this source, such as infanticide, quarrels, murders, and such like things. All those evils are done away. We abused the maimed, the blind, the aged. The chiefs oppressed the poor without mercy. We did not know then that these things were wrong, for we had no wise teachers. But now it is plain to us that all these things are wicked. It would be well if we had left them off. But in this respect, there has been a wonderful change for the better. Property is now secured to all by the laws of the kingdom. We chiefs do not dare now to take property which is not our own. Some chiefs have done so, and they have been called to account. Very good were all things in my mind in those days. But latterly, I have become acquainted with the the faith of the word of God and the law of God, showing a better way than I ever knew before. Let us bless the name of Jehovah for all his benefits to us in our nation. Blessed is that man who keeps the law of the Lord. I wish that our governor would say this. This is a pagan governor whose life was amazingly transformed, infanticide, gross forms of sexuality done away with. I know you live in this world. I know you live in a pagan primitive world today, much like they did back then. But the redemption of Jesus has come to a people and it can come to Colorado too. I believe this. And I believe if the message goes out and we have missionaries to take the message out, I think change could happen here. As it did in Hawaii. Does anybody else believe this? Western materialists, evolutionists, atheists, Christian apostates, they basically ruined Hawaii, and I get that. Okay, I I know some of you come back, yeah, but the materialists, the other missionaries, the atheists, the evolutionists, the universities destroyed Hawaii. I know they did. I know they did. But I'm just pointing out what Jesus did and what he can do in the future, starting here in this room, for those who believe him and for those who will take the message to others. I believe this Message is the greatest message on earth. And here's one more point that I think will encourage you. Now, one more point, because a lot of you think, yeah, but Hawaii. I know what you're thinking. But here's one more thing. In 1830, John Williams brought the gospel to Samoa for the first time. Almost immediately, the king 
was converted. And by the way, at the same time, in the providence of God, that king had united all the islands under himself at that very moment that John Williams made it. In fact, the last battle was fought at the very time John Williams saw the smoke of the last battle coming up above the islands as he landed. It was the last battle in which all the powers of all the Samoan islands were, were, were brought under one king, and that king was converted almost the next day. Somebody say, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, to this day, now listen to this. To this day, the Samoan Constitution requires the government to conduct itself, quote, this is the Constitution. According to the Constitution of Samoa, the government is to conduct itself, quote, within the limits prescribed by God's commandments. And in 2017, this would have been, what, six years ago, the Parliament of Samoa came together, and they had a problem. The problem was Western nations. The problem is us. The problem is America and England. And so the Samoa Parliament came together in 2017, and they said, the Western nations are pressing on us to turn ourselves into an atheist country like they are and to homosexualize the schools. Therefore, by motion of parliament and signed by the president of Samoa, the parliament amended the constitution to declare Samoa not to be a secular nation, but a Christian nation. And that was put in the constitution, and it was passed by a vote of 43 to 6. This is the influence of the Christian gospel in Samoa some 200 years ago. Amazing what Jesus has done to transform the world. He has become the light to the Gentile worlds. And I know you've already heard my stories of Fiji and the Fuegian people. They were utterly impossible. Darwin said absolutely impossible to reach the Fuegian people with anything that could ever civilize the people. They were most unfriendly. They killed everybody who came anywhere near the shoreline. And yes, the martyr missionaries, I know there were approximately 13 martyr missionaries that were shot down or speared uh, as they tried to approach the islands. But eventually, yes, even the Fuegians bowed to Jesus Christ. And Charles Darwin, I was checking out most of his letters on this particular subject, for about the last 15 years of his life, Charles Darwin admitted he was wrong and sent donations to the Fuegian mission for the rest of his life, admitting that the Galilean had conquered. And his ideas, which were put into The Descent of Man and other books, saying the Fuegians were examples of those peoples that ought to be eliminated. And he used those as the prime examples of those who should be euthanized or completely wiped off the face of the earth. And yet, the last 15 years of his life, he had to repent of that as he faced the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus won and Darwin lost on Fuegian Islands. And that's the most significant uh, message I think we've seen in the last 150 years of missions. Really phenomenal, the sorts of things that have happened as Jesus has come into the world and turned on the lights. He's brought his truth. And that's, that's the point that uh, Simeon is making here. He, he, he brought the revelation. And isn't that interesting? That's pretty much what the governor of Honolulu said. He said, we were in the dark. We didn't know any of this. The idols, they, they were, the demons were effectively telling us there was no difference between right and wrong, which is what's said in the universities today in our country. But he said, the light of Jesus came in, the truth of Jesus came in, transformed them. It was the revelation of Jesus that made all the difference. On these islands. 
New Guinea was the most dangerous place. I believe New Guinea was the most dangerous place in the 1870s. James Chalmers, of course, lost his life, finally. But today, New Guinea is 96% Christian. This is more than America, by a long shot. New Guinea is 96% Christian, 70% Protestant. Jesus has turned on the lights. Jesus has turned on the lights all over the world. These are the amazing works that he's done. But brothers and sisters, we're almost all Gentiles here. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter, right? But Jesus has turned on the lights for us too. Let's move on to the third defining life purpose, life legacy of Jesus. And that is verse 32, that Jesus is the glory of God's people. Jesus is the glory of God's people. That's verse 32. And this is the gloriousness where the glory had departed. So much of the Old Testament, Israel, is how the glory isn't there anymore. During the period of the judges, the the Ark of the Covenant was taken. You remember that? And then Eli's grandson was named Ichabod. The glory has departed. And the glory departed from Israel. And the glory departed again at the exile. In fact, this is what we read in Ezekiel 10.3. This is what was going on. The glory was taken out. And I don't believe it was ever brought back in until we get to Ezekiel 43. But Ezekiel 10, the cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple. When the man went in, a cloud filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord then rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the Lord, of glory of the Lord. And then in verse 18, we find the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, and it stopped above the cherubim. And then again in chapter 11, 23, the glory of the Lord then went up from within the city, stopped above the mountain uh, just east of it, and it departed entirely from the temple and from the city of Jerusalem. So, so the glory of the Lord had departed in uh, roughly 500 B.C. So now you have a depreciation or a, a lack of the glory of God in, in, in Jerusalem. And, and it remained that way until Ezekiel 46 when you find that the Shekinah glory of God returns. But at this point it returns to the temple. And then the waters then flow out of this temple into the whole world. And on the banks on both sides of the river uh, grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And so, brothers and sisters, the return of the glory of God that we find in Ezekiel 46 can only be interpreted as the coming of Jesus and the temple of Jesus, which is his body. And this, therefore, is the glory of God on earth. The most glorious thing of of God on earth is really what we've read about in Hawaii, what we read about in uh, Samoa and other places like this where you have you, you have this amazing transformation and redemption of these cannibals and others who have really received the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in them and now they have become a manifestation of, of, of the glorious church of God on earth and it's the most beautiful thing on earth. A church is the most beautiful thing on earth because it is the body of Christ and because it is the work of Christ in you and in me. And it's so beautiful. So the glory of God has come back. It's no longer the glittering gold 
that's on the temple or on the uh, various implements of the temple, it's now right there upon the people of God itself. That's the most glorious thing. The most glorious thing is, is the building of this new temple of, of Jesus and his church. This is the glory of God's people on earth. Move on to number four. And this is, again, the fourth defining life, purpose, and legacy of Jesus. Why did he come? Who is he? What is he going to be? What is he going to do? What is Jesus? Who is this one who's come? Well, here in verse 34, Simeon looks more directly towards Mary. And, and Simeon, again, has a prophetic word for Mary and says that Jesus will serve as the catalyst for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now, that's the way I take a catalyst to something that stirs up and enables a chemical reaction. So Jesus is going to be that which stirs up the, the rising, the fall of many in Israel. And I take this to mean that Jesus is coming to shake the world. And the world will never be the same once it's been visited by Jesus. Jesus has come to shatter the world, to shake the world. Put another way, Jesus has come to knock people off the fence. By the way, that's what the preaching of the Word of God does. It, it knocks people off the fence. People tend to want to say, hey, I'm neutral. Hey, I'm just going to be an externalistic, superficial Christian. I'm just going to be a big, pharisaical hypocrite, be, be judgmental towards everybody else, or work my way into heaven, or whatever the typical American response or Jewish response was. People tend to be that way. But when Jesus comes in, he shakes the fence. He shatters the fence. And people will fall one way or the other. They will rise or they will fall one way or the other. Jesus is such that one cannot be neutral in his presence. You cannot remain neutral in the presence of Jesus Christ. The world will attempt it. But it just doesn't work. Thousands upon thousands were converted and baptized in the book of Acts at Pentecost. And then a million people were slaughtered in AD 70. Jesus comes to take it one way or the other. Jesus comes to shake the world, to shatter the world. That's why he comes. So the question for all of us is, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? We see this in the ministry all the time. People can't remain on the fence. They just can't remain on the fence. They will go one way or the other. Here's how Jesus wraps up the parable of the vine dressers. Listen, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? has become the chief cornerstone. Speaking to the Pharisees who were rejecting him and about to crucify him, Jesus said, this is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And here it is. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. What does this mean? This means that those who 
fall on Jesus are broken by their own sin, humbled, dependent now upon Jesus. They will be broken and they will be saved. But the one upon whom that stone falls, judgment, judgment. Finally, here's the last point of Simeon there in the temple as he prophesies over the baby, as he speaks to Mary. He says this. Let me read it to you. It's a bit of a cryptic statement, but I'm going to do the best I can to give it to you. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here's what I believe this means. Jesus is a sign from God, which means it's a miracle. Jesus is a living, walking, talking miracle, supernatural existence of the living God, born of a virgin. That itself is a miracle. That's a sign. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. It doesn't usually happen that way. He is the very Son of God in human flesh. So Jesus is a sign, miracle from God. Come to earth. He is opposed and resisted and reveals the true nature and thoughts of men. Jesus shines into the hearts with a 10,000 megawatt light bulb. He, he, he penetrates. And so we ask ourselves the question, why did the most righteous people, the most fastidious, righteous, self-righteous people on earth, kill Jesus, who was the most righteous, the most innocent, and the most loving person on earth? Why did the, the, the very height of all of externalistic religion on earth, why did they become the arch criminals in all of history? It's a, it's a question worth asking oneself, isn't it? The, one, the ones who had all of this revelation, who did everything they could, at least in an externalistic way, to live these righteous lives, they were the ones that killed their Messiah. Why is that? Again, it's worth contemplating. It's, it's worth asking ourselves. Because why? Because it shines a light into your heart and mine as well. It defines us in our great need for a Savior. Why, why did these guys almost immediately pick up rocks to throw at Jesus there down there in Nazareth? Right away as he comes out to just share, he came to set the captives free and all that. They immediately started throwing rocks at him. Why, why the reaction like that? Because Jesus himself shines into us and illuminates who we are by nature. This is what we look like, brothers and sisters, by nature. He comes, he stands before us. Every man, woman, and child. And he speaks to us. And he pierces through us. The sword pierced through his heart. And his mother witnessed that. But he pierces through every heart. Jesus has come to shatter our world. 
he shakes it and he shatters it. And we're all forced to reckon with him. Every one of us forced to reckon with him. Have we received him? Have we received his salvation? Have we bowed the knee to the Lord? When the Lord has told us, forgive your brother, stop holding that grudge. You say, yes, Lord, or do you continue holding that grudge over, you're resisting him. You're resisting Jesus for doing that. Jesus shines the light into every one of us. Have you received his forgiveness? Have you seen that it's his blood that was shed to forgive you of your dastardly sins and your rebellion against him? Have you received Jesus, his forgiveness? Have you embraced him? Have you received his forgiveness so much that now it's just second nature to forgive your brothers and sisters? You are forced to reckon with this person, Jesus Christ. And his cross speaks. His cross cries out better things than that of Abel. And I I believe this. I believe that nobody can stand in the face of the cross and, and just come away neutral. What is he saying? Why is the creator there? Why is the creator in the womb of this woman? Why is this creator on a cross? Why is he bleeding? Why are they crucifying him? You, you have to grapple with this. You have, to, you have to respond to it. You have to receive it. You have to explain it. You have to have it explained to you. And then you have to receive it. We must reckon with Jesus. The whole world must reckon with Jesus. I, I had an opportunity to spend 30 minutes with a Muslim this week. He knew just enough English. And I mentioned the name of Jesus and what he did to save us from our sins. And he blanched. He looked away. He got angry. He tried to get out of the car. Why? Because Everybody who hears the name of Jesus and they see his cross, they're going to have to deal with it. And I saw that man, and I was actually amazed at his reaction. I thought, wow, that's a severe reaction. That's what Jesus has come to do. He will bring about a severe reaction on this world. He has come to shatter this world. I I told this young man that I loved him. And I honestly said that. He wanted some help, some money. I gave him that too. I told him, I love you. The money means nothing to me. And I told him about Jesus. And I gave him a New Testament. And to this day, I sincerely love that man. And I hope that he reads the Testament. I hope you will help me pray for him. I think this is the first time he's heard the gospel from what I could tell. What an opportunity. Well, brothers and sisters, we, we deflect Jesus. People deflect Jesus. Atheism is a sham. It's a weak excuse. It's a deflection. It's not even hardly worth considering. It's the weakest sham available to mankind. It just is. What happens to the self-righteous religions of the world? I'll fake it till I make it. They've got to deal with the cross. Why is the creator on the cross suffering, bleeding, dying for sin? Not because you're righteous, but because you're a sinner. And he's there because he loves you. And he's experiencing this wrath and this curse due to you for your sin upon himself. 
So the question remains for every one of us. What will you do with this Jesus? I'm pressing the question to you. Is anybody trying to deflect it this morning? I'm pressing the question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the Creator in the womb? Will you serve Him? Will you bow to Him? Will you receive His forgiveness and respond in joy and a sense of peace, a sense of relief, and then testify it to others? Or will you just keep pushing Him away? Will you fall down on this rock and be broken and weep and receive Him as your Lord? Will you fall down on your knees and worship Him? Or would you crucify Him? Which will you do? It will be one or the other. You will worship Him or crucify Him. Be as the wise men. Be as the magi. They worshiped Him. They received Him. Let's receive Him too. Amen? Father God, what a Savior, what a Redeemer, what a kingdom, what a King. What great things Jesus has come to be the light to the Gentiles, to be the salvation so needed. God, to bring the rock of our salvation upon which we can be broken, upon which we can cast ourselves and be broken, and to receive Him in faith and to worship Him. Father God, I pray that our entire conception of Jesus will be renewed, will be, will be restored, will be different, will be more something that brings a spirit of joy and exaltation in our lives. Father, do something that when we, when we see Jesus, we see our Savior, our Lord, the Redeemer, the Lamb on the throne, and we worship Him and speak of Him. And tell others about him. God, I pray that this would be more real to me, to us, and send more Muslims to us. Give us more of those opportunities. Oh, we want to see the redemptive work of Jesus happen. Save that young man that I met this last week. Father, that he be reading this word right now as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As, as we come to the table now, I... I want to come back to the rock, which is Jesus. Was Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes, he was. He was there. I believe he was the commander of the hosts of God's people. Under jo- when Joshua met that strange person just before Jericho, that, I believe, was Jesus. Jesus, we're told, was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Was Jesus there in the Old Testament? Yes, he was there. A little bit of a mysterious form. He was a little behind the scenes, but he was there. And he, he shows up throughout. Very interesting. You find many, a number of re- representations of Jesus along the way. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the cornerstone of this building. So who is the rock except our God? Who is the rock except our God? The Catholics were wrong on this one. Who is the rock except our God? 
it is on this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Again, I ask the question, who is the rock except our God? Indeed, God is the rock. He's a rock of refuge. And Jesus specifically is the rock of our salvation. So four things about rocks before we come to the table. Number one, rocks are heavy. Jesus is heavy. What do we say when we say something is heavy? That's really heavy. Intense, significant, important, hard to move, isn't going to move, isn't going to go anywhere. And so as I thought about heavy rocks, I can hardly lift a rock about this big. The largest rock on earth is in Australia. And I actually had the wrong calculation for this until I came to church this morning, and my wife reminded me that area is pi r squared, not pi d. So literally this coming, I had it all calculated out and realized I was off by a factor of 3,500. So um, it was interesting. My wife corrected me on my geometry, and then I got a better illustration for you all this morning. But, But the largest rock on earth is Mount Augustus in Australia. It's a single rock. It's seven kilometers long, and it weighs, everybody ready for this? I got a pretty accurate number now. It weighs 56 billion tons. That's a rock. Everybody say, that's a rock. Our Jesus is heavier than that. Our Jesus is a rock to which we can hold. In fact, just so everybody knows, the heaviest thing ever transported by man was one million tons. So you're just saying, can man move that rock? No, this is 56,000 times heavier than the heaviest thing man has ever moved. Is that clear? Jesus is heavy. Jesus is always there. You're not moving Jesus. That's number one. Jesus is heavy. Significant. You don't want Jesus falling on you. Is that clear? Anybody want a 56,000 or 56 billion ton, excuse me, 56 billion ton, ton, not pound, ton rock falling on you? No, we don't. But we will fall on the rock, which is Jesus, right? We will be broken as we fall on that rock. We will be humbled. We will be in faith holding to the rock of our salvation. So that's number one. Number two, we build on Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. Number three, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is precious. Now that word precious means extremely valuable. Jesus is extremely valuable. He is a 1,000 quadrillion dollar diamond. He, he is a diamond larger than the seven-kilometer rock in Australia. Jesus is this shining diamond that is heavy and extremely precious. Jesus is valuable, though rejected by the entire Jewish religious system, cast away as nothing. He's a rock of an offense. But for us, Peter says, he is valuable. He is honored. He is the most precious to us. And then finally, here's the last thing as we come to the table today. As we think upon Jesus the rock, here it is. Jesus is a living stone. 
and he's the source of living water. Moses struck the rock once and the water flowed in order to keep everybody alive. As they move forward, the rock is only to be struck once, not twice. Nobody is to strike Jesus a second time. Jesus has been struck once. He was not to be struck a second time. Moses was to what? Speak to the rock, and then that water was to come out. So so the water comes out of the rock in the wilderness, and that's our life, brothers and sisters. He is the rock of life. He, he, He is the rock that has been struck one time, and that water flowed out of his side. Blood flowed out of his side. The water to nourish us, the blood to cleanse us. Never seen that before until I just looked at you. But think about it the water to nourish us, the water of life to nourish, the blood to cleanse. That's what happened when the sword pierced his side. It was the water and the blood that came out. And so, brothers and sisters, we need the living water of Jesus to flow into us as we as we fall on the rock and speak to the rock and pray to the rock. The water just keeps flowing into us and we become the fountain of living water ourselves. And that water keeps flowing through us uh, into the lives of others as well. Praise God. So today, as we come to the table, this is all I'm saying, fall on the rock. Go to the rock, run to the rock, fly to the rock, fly to Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Throw yourself on Jesus. Be broken, be humbled, and drink of him. Drink of his life today. That's my encouragement as we come to the table. Those of you visiting for the first time, take a look at the back of the bulletin. We have a little thing on how we practice the Lord's table here. But let's pray God's blessing on this time. Father God, please bless this time that your spirit would just fill us, oh God. We pray as we take the cup, as we again fly to Jesus and fall on Jesus, that we be nourished by Jesus. God, we pray for this. We so need that living water in us. We need your love. We need your life, Jesus, flow through us. We so need it to bless others as well. I need it. We all need it. Come, Jesus. We fall on you now. It's okay if we're broken. As we receive your life, that's all that matters to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.